0: Uh, This morning, I have a simple goal that I want to accomplish with you. Pastor Joel set us up nicely for that last night. He spoke about how we as men, when we gather together for worship on Sunday, that we're to be ones who stir one another up for good works, for love, love for God, love for each other. And my task this morning is to think about doing that not so much on Sunday, but thinking about how we can do that Monday through Saturday. How we as men can be involved in the lives of others, specifically other men, and stirring up in them love and good works. And we're going to see that from Titus chapter 2 here this morning. You can follow along as I read Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, and we'll read down through the end of this chapter. The Apostle Paul writes this, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, eager for good works. Declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Now, as we think about this idea of stirring up love and good works toward others Monday through Saturday, another way of thinking that or saying that or describing that is that we want to see how we, hopefully as godly men, can help others grow and become more godly themselves. We want to see how we, as godly men, can help others become godly men as well, Monday through Saturday. Now, eventually, in our time today, I promise that We will talk very briefly about what a godly man looks like from our text here in Titus. And we're going to spend some significant time giving some illustrations and examples of how we can encourage other men in their walk with Christ. We're going to get there. But I want to press this idea home right away. And that is this if you are a Christian, it is a command, and it is a command, and in our day, It is a great challenge to help other men grow in their godliness. It's a command, and it's a great challenge. Now, when we talk about men helping other men to grow in their godly walks, we're dealing with something that we call often discipleship or Christian discipleship. A disciple at its core is simply a follower of Jesus, So we can restate our central theme in a couple of different ways. We can talk about how we want others to become better disciples of Jesus Monday through Saturday. Or we can say we want others to become better followers of Jesus Monday through Saturday. It's commanded. That's our job as Christians. And it's a great challenge. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that this is commanded. Remember some of the last words that Jesus gave right before he goes into heaven in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples, make followers of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I, Jesus says, have commanded you. Now, that passage is not just about sharing the gospel with others, although that's taught in that passage. It's not just preaching Jesus as Savior to other people. That's also taught in that passage. But more than that, it also involves as followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, godly men in this age who are baptized and who are taught themselves, they are instructed to help other people to observe, to do, to follow, to obey the things that Jesus commanded. And that would include not only the doctrine and the teaching that Jesus taught, but it also, when Jesus talks there, he's talking about our lives, how we live. We're to actually show people how to not only believe what Jesus wants us to believe, but actually to live how Jesus wants us to live. Both of those things are commanded by Jesus. And when Jesus gave that command, he didn't just give that to the apostles. You know that, brothers? And hear this, brothers, he didn't just give that to your pastor either. And he didn't just give that to the deacons. He gave that to the church. And if you're a born-again Christian, that means he gave it to you. That it's your job to actually make other followers, disciples, we can say it in our context today, godly men. In the world around us. That's our job. Now, when we come to our passage here in Titus, Paul is telling the church on the island of Crete how they are to make that happen in very practical and tangible ways. He actually gives instructions as to how to live the Christian life, how to be a follower of Jesus. And he, and he gives these instructions to five different groups of people. He speaks to older men, older women, young women, young men, and to bondservants, or slaves. And to each of these, he gives some basic outlines of Christian living. Now, when you read through Titus chapter 2, just hear this. Paul is not giving an exhaustive list of everything that each of those groups are to be. He gives some very broad themes, One of the reasons we know that is that if you go down in verse number 11, he just gives some general categories. Brothers and sisters, he's saying, this is what I'm after. Look down at verse number 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That grace is seen in Jesus Christ, his coming to this earth, his giving of his life on the cross, so that we might have the forgiveness and the redemption of sins. But that grace that God gives is supposed to accomplish some things in people's lives. And and here's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to train us or to teach us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And the, the goal that Paul gives is for older men, older women, younger women, young men, and bond servants to, to accomplish these very things in their lives. I think this is actually a fulfillment of what Jesus expected the church to do in Matthew 28. Not just believe the right things about Jesus, but to live as Jesus wanted us to live. Now, how does Paul, when he writes this, anticipate that this is going to happen in the church. How are Christians going to get to the kind of Christian maturity or godliness, mature followers of Jesus Christ? How are you going to get there in the church? And one of the ways in Titus 2 that this happens is that there's a pattern that is established in the churches. You have older men being instructed in how to live in verse 2. You have older women in verse number 3 also instructed as to how to live as well. But then you notice this in verse 4. The older women were supposed to do something, and so train the young women. So there's a picture here of these women, and they're not pastors. They're not deacons. They're women in the church, and they're they're to teach the young women how to do the Christian life. That's really what they're talking about there, how to do the Christian life. And they're really basic things, like how to be a good wife to their husbands, how to be a hard worker at home, and so on. It's Christian life stuff. Now, watch what happens in verse number six. Paul says, likewise, or in the same way. Now, in what way are we talking about? Well, in the same way that that older women, mature women, are to teach the younger women in the context of the Christian churches there in Crete, so also Titus is to urge the younger men in how to do the Christian life. Young men here probably refers to people in their mid-30s and under. Now, there's no doubt that Paul gives this instruction to Titus, but the assumption is that Titus here is just a model for what other mature men are supposed to be doing in the church. There were, they were to be able to instruct and teach the young men and how to be self-controlled, how to live in integrity and dignity in their lives. This is the command of Jesus in Matthew 28, in operation, godly men helping other men become godly in their lives. Followers of Jesus helping others to become better followers of Jesus. Teaching them, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Not just in what you believe, but how you live. That's what this text is about. Now, that's the command. But here's the challenge. The challenge is that this is harder, harder, I think, than ever in our current cultural moment. In other words, in the times in which we live, it's hard to take pagan people and make them look like Jesus. Really hard. And let's just think about this for a moment by asking a couple of questions. Would you say that our society is full of young men who are self-controlled? Would you say that our state here in Minnesota is full of 20 and 30-year-olds who are dignified in the way that they live their lives? Would you say that your community is bursting with young men who live in integrity in every area of their life. That word integrity refers to not being corrupt, but rather pure. Would you say our society is overflowing with guys like that? Would you say in verse 12 that our churches are full of young men, teens and 20-somethings, 30-somethings, that are renouncing worldly passions... Is that the society that you see around whatever community that you're living in? I think, brothers, we all know the answers to those questions. Maybe we could ask it this way. Do we have any employers in this room? You got people that work for you? Anybody like that? All right, let's try this way. Do we have any managers in this room? Anybody got people that work underneath you? All right? Got a few of you like that, all right? Uh, Would you say... That when it comes time to hire people, that there are plenty of candidates who are self-controlled, dignified, and live in integrity. I, I know the answer to those questions because I talk to employers all the time. They dread hiring people. I'm one of the oldest millennials that you will meet. I'm right at the cutoff. All right? So for some of you, you've already dismissed me. I'm sorry about that. There's some radical shifts that have occurred in my generation and the generations who have come after me, men who are now in their 20s down to the early teens. I mean, we're talking actually several generations now of the, the youngest kids that are in our society. When I was 18, I went to work for the retail store Old Navy for one day. My dad and other men in my life had repeatedly taught and showed me how to work hard, and I worked there for one day, not because I quit, but because I had a couple of days after a semester in college and before I went home for the summer where I didn't have anything to do. And there was an old Navy store not far from us that was setting up, and they needed people to come just for temporarily to set up the store. And I have to tell you, if you've never set up a store like that before, it takes a lot of work. You have to have a pile of people to set up all the shelving and put all the clothes and items on the shelves. A lot of people have to come out to do that. And at the time, they were paying almost $8 an hour, which back then was was pretty good money. And so I didn't have much to do, and I needed the money. I was a poor college student. And so you could work up to 12 hours on this Saturday. And I, I went down there, and I, I signed up to work. And there were probably 50 or 60 of us there that showed up to work on this particular Saturday. And they were, we were all assigned a series of managers who were there to They divided us up and put us in different parts of the store. Well, my job, along with one other guy's job, was to take packages that there was a guy up in a semi-truck that was handing them down, and they were big boxes full of clothes like you would see at an old Navy store, full of clothes. And our job was to open up those boxes and to, there was labels on each of the packages and to determine which section of the store that they went in, and you would put it on a cart that somebody else would wheel to the particular section of the store so that it could be filled, all the shelves could be filled with stuff. And what they did, uh, being a, such a safety-conscious company, and actually also they didn't want us to cut the clothes, is they gave us plastic box cutters, not even a real blade on it, just plastic so that you, would, you could cut through the tape on the boxes and distribute the stuff out. So I started to go in town, and they told us, don't even break down the boxes after you unload them. You just throw them in a stack. It was an outdoor kind of a outlet mall place. And so me and this other guy, we're, just, we're flying through these things, opening up, putting on carts. And after about 45 minutes, I mean, there's literally a mountain of boxes that are sitting outside. And one of the regional managers came over to us and said, okay, plenty of product right now in the store. You guys have done great. I want you guys to work on breaking down those boxes, stacking them so that we can dispose of them properly. Now, I don't know if you know this, but trying to take a, a plastic box cutter and cut the backside of tape after it's empty, it's not particularly easy. Now, the guy had specifically said, you got box cutters, right? And we said, yeah, yeah, we got, we got those. And so I grabbed a box and I started trying to do this. And after a couple of times, it was just going really slow. And so I just grabbed a, I grabbed a box and... And I just punched the back of it and ripped it open and stacked it. And I did that. And that was going a whole lot faster. And pretty soon the guy next to me was looking at me and he put his box cutter in the pocket and he was doing the same thing. And now we're just flying through this pile. Have you ever have that, that feeling that all of a sudden you're being watched by someone? So I've been working and all of a sudden I had that feeling and I looked behind me and I saw two of the regional managers standing there and also the store manager standing there. A couple of them got their arms crossed and they're just staring at me and they're looking at me. And I was panicked. Got a, I'm 18 years old, not even quite, 19, almost 19. And I thought, these guys are upset because I didn't do what I told. I was told, that you know I wasn't using the box cutter, I was using my, my knuckles. And one of them called over to me and said, it's David, right? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, we've been watching you work. And I thought, here it comes. I'm in trouble, right? So we're looking for an assistant store manager full time. And we'd like you to be the lead assistant for this store and hire you full time. Now, you got a picture where I'm at. I'm 18 years old. I was absolutely stunned. Absolutely stunned. I had worked there for less than an hour. Now I, I learned something that day. It is not hard to be above average in my generation, all right? <laughs> not hard at all. And secondly, if they were that desperate, it has to be really bad out there. It has to be really, really bad out there. Now, that's over 20 years ago. And it's worse now. Fast forward a couple years later, I was attending a Christian college and I was working at Menards about 20 hours a week and was going to school. They hired another guy from my college to work in the same department that I worked in. We worked in the plumbing department at Menards and he had worked there for about a week and there was one particular day in which I was working and I think I came in like three o'clock in the afternoon and he was supposed to come in maybe four, four thirty, something like that. The time came for his shift to start and he wasn't there. Wait 15 minutes, wait 30 minutes, 45 minutes, he's not there. And the manager of the department's pretty upset, and so got on the phone and called this guy's room, and he answered, where are you at? And this guy, now this is a guy going to a Christian college, and I'll just say, without giving any details away, he, he came from what I thought was a good family. He should have known better. He didn't call in, he never gave any information, he just didn't show up for work. And this is the answer that he gave the boss. A guy by the way that I was trying to witness to. He said, "Yesterday I worked so much and I walked so much that I got chafing between my thighs and it hurts." So I just can't come into work. Well, I heard a lot of choice words after the phone was hung up that day from that unregenerate store assistant manager. And we in our culture have challenges in self-control, in integrity, in dignity, in work ethic. If you think about things like purity for young men, is that what characterizes our world? The statistics on pornography use are off the charts, and that says nothing about sexting and sexual exploration that is rampant everywhere among young men. Or how about areas of being self-controlled in managing our time? Yesterday, the uh, game Call of Duty 3 Modern Warfare was released. I've already given some of you one reason to hate me because I'm a millennial, but let me give you another. I I actually really love video games. In fact, you do whatever this you want with this, okay? Okay. I actually have enjoyed over my life the Call of Duty franchise, so I'm not knocking the franchise if you think this, or think that I am. But here's the thing. There are grown men in their 20s and 30s, some of which have girlfriends, wives, and children, that will literally spend all day today playing that newly released game. That is what they will spend their entire day on. They will beat the campaign and try to rank up as fast as they possibly can to advance themselves. And they'll neglect other responsibilities. We have challenges for young men who don't know how to be a husband or a father. Here's the reality. For most of the young men who are in their 20s and 30s, they did not come from a stable home, and they're not producing stable homes either. In the 2020 census, it was revealed that over 40% of births in the United States occurred outside of married parents, out of wedlock. That number has nearly been that high for a decade. And then if you ask, what percentage of those 60% who are born into two-parent married homes, what percentage of them will have two-parent married homes for all the 18 years of their growing up? And you can almost cut that number in half. That's the society we live in. And then if you ask, of those homes where the parents actually stay together... What percentage of those homes would you consider healthy homes? I'm not even talking about Christian homes, but healthy homes where mom and dad love each other, treat each other with respect, the police are never called, there's never a threat of divorce, we know the troubles that we see all around us. So we have this command to make followers of Jesus, but there's this massive challenge because... Those realities aren't just outside the four walls of places like this. They're increasingly becoming the kinds of people that are showing up inside the church. Pastor Tim prayed last night about our crazy, insane culture. How in the world are we going to produce in a world like this young men who renounce ungodliness and worldly passions And live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this crazy present age, the way Paul describes it. And what I want to do is I I want to try to answer that question with the time that we have left. And as I do so, I just want to say that what you heard was a, a really long introduction to not quite as long message. Okay, It's a really long introduction to not quite as a long message. How in the world... Are we going to produce young men who renounce ungodliness, who renounce worldly passions, and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives? We need to think about that really seriously as men in a place like this today. And I want to answer that question by offering to you three words. Three words. The first word is parallel. The second word is pattern. And the third word is plan. Talk about those three words. First of all, note the, the parallel. Note with me the parallel between Titus' world and our world today. Now, when Paul wrote this letter to Pastor Titus and the group of Christians that were meeting in various Christian churches on the island of Crete, he, he was writing to a crazy, messed up society. And if you say, David, how do you, how do you know that that's true? Well, just go back, go back just uh, one chapter to chapter 1 and verse 12. The context of this is that there were people who were teaching false doctrine in the church, and Paul quotes a poet or a prophet, a sage of sorts, who was from Crete. And this was one of Crete's own people's assessment, a learned man's assessment of the culture of the society of Crete. And here's what he said. Paul quotes him. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, liars, we know what that is. That's people who do not tell the truth. Do we have a problem with that today? We can't even tell the truth about one's biological gender. Much less the truth for everyday living. But the next two descriptions, I think, are probably actually go together in some sense. They're, they're kind of parallel in so, of a sort's. Evil, ble- beast, evil beast refers to animal passions. In a similar way, lazy gluttons is literally lazy bellies. These two things are referring to people who just live for whatever pleases their flesh. They live for whatever pleases their desires. They, they go with their gut. They go with uh, with, with, uh, with whatever. They go with whatever feels good in the moment, right now. That's the description there. Of these people. And there's evidence, actually, that even the word for Crete, the island of Crete, that is, actually became a verb in the Greek language that literally meant to lie or to deceive. So, so literally, the, the, the island began, became known in the world as, uh, as the lie. Truth-denying, self-centered people who just did whatever their bodies craved. I think that's actually a really good description of the world in which we live in today. It's a lot like it. We just do, by we I mean our society, whatever feels good to us in the moment. Our culture denies objective truth, and it is dominated from the advertisement to what is taught in the classrooms. What's preached from the mountaintops is you just do you. And you feel, do whatever feels good to you. Now, because there's this parallel to whatever was happening in Titus's day to what is happening in our day, actually, I'm not discouraged by this text. Actually, it gives me hope. It gives me hope. Because Paul thought, and we could probably better state it because Paul is writing inspired Scripture here, God thought that there could be Real change that could happen to people, individuals, in a pagan, crazy, Cretan society. He thought, God thought, people can change because the grace of God in Jesus Christ has appeared. And I think that if Paul were here today looking at, as Pastor Tim prayed last night, this crazy world... I think Paul would say, it can happen here t- today too. Now that leads us to our second word. We're asking the question, how can we produce godly young men, followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus today? First word, parallel. There's a parallel in our day to Titus' day. Second word is the word pattern. The word pattern. And the pattern is for Christians to teach other Christians what to not just Believe as a Christian, but how to live as a Christian. Christians teaching other Christians not just what to believe as a Christian, but how to live as a Christian. Now, I've already mentioned this earlier, but the pattern that is laid out here in this text is that people with some measure of maturity should lead and teach and instruct others into how to live godly lives. Older women are doing that to the younger women, maturity to the less mature. And I think the same pattern holds true with the men. In fact, Paul almost in verse 6 interrupts his train of thought because likely Titus became the supreme example of a mature man teaching young men. And you ask, what is it that they were to teach? What is it that they were to train people in? And this is an important question to ask for there are many people when they hear our original statement that we want as godly men to help other men become godly men, they immediately begin thinking of things like teaching a class or teaching a Bible study. They hear the same thing when they think about the idea of discipleship. They immediately think about teaching a Bible lesson to someone. And for some of you in this room, that is really intimidating to you, and you think, I can't do that. I'm not interested in doing that. I don't want to do that. I'm not capable of doing that. Now, I'll just say that if that's you, I think you're probably selling yourself a little bit short. You probably can do more of teaching the doctrine and the teaching of God's Word than you probably think you can do. And if you need help on that, it just so happens that there's two workshops coming up to help you on that. Thank you, Pastor Tim, all right? But, watch this in the Scriptures, brothers. That's actually not what Paul has chiefly in mind in chapter 2. He doesn't have in chapter 2 chiefly in mind teaching doctrine lessons, theology lessons. Oh, there's plenty of theology here. But that's not what he's talking about. In fact, if you go back to chapter one, chapter one focuses heavily on sound teaching and doctrine and the preaching of scripture. That's why the churches there in Crete needed elders, they needed pastors who were supposed to be people who could teach the Word. So back in chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, these people, these elders, these pastors, they must hold firm the trustworthy Word as taught so that He may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine also to rebuke those who contradict it. There's no doubt that we need sound preaching and teaching. We need Sunday school teachers and Bible study group leaders, and those can be in the church and around the kitchen table. It's most certainly true that we need all of those things. But brothers, when you get to chapter 2, what Paul tells us is that sound teaching is only one half of the equation of being a follower of Jesus. What people also need, what Christians need, is not only to teach the doctrine, but to teach and show and model and demonstrate what it means to live as a Christian. Notice how he says it in verse 1. But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And that that word accord is sometimes translated as proper. Some of your translations might have that. It means literally teach what is fitting with. Teach what is fitting with sound doctrine. Down in verse 10. Paul is talking about this same concept as it relates to bondservants, and he says, "...so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." The doctrine, the teaching of Scripture is to be clothed or dressed in godly living. You can't actually have a godly man who just knows the Bible. He has to be a godly man who not only knows the Bible, but actually lives like the Bible would tell us to teach. Both of those things are absolutely essential if you're going to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And you know, men, we need this kind of thing. Our churches need this kind of thing. Men in our churches need this kind of thing. You know, we have some dads out here. I met some of you last night. I talked to one dad last night who has a pile of kids in the little kids stage of life. And he said, I never expected as a dad to be in the ER as much as I have been, right? Stuff happens. Being a dad is glorious, but it, it brings all sorts of challenges, doesn't it? For those of you who are dads. And it doesn't matter what stage of life you're in as a dad, whether you have little kids or you have teenagers, or now you're trying to figure out what it means to be a parent as your kids are moving out of the house. Having patterns, having models of men who can show us and teach us not just what to believe about Jesus, but what it means to be a a dad in every one of those stages of life, that's needed now more than ever. A number of years ago, I, I got, a, I got a, a new car, not brand new, but new to me. It's a long time ago. I had just a couple of kids, and they were very little at the time. My wife and I were young. We didn't have much money. I was going to seminary, I was pastoring, and we needed a new car. And we got, a, got connected with a, a man in lacrosse who at that time was a used car dealer, and he on the side worked to provide really good deals on cars for pastors. It was a gracious ministry. And the way it worked was that you would tell him roughly what you were looking for in a vehicle, and he would look at auctions for a car that sort of met your description, and if he could find it at a good price, he would get it and essentially give it to you at cost. That was, that was a great ministry for pastors, and I was young and not paid all that well, and it was it really helped to us. Well, that guy found, and this will tell you how long ago this was, a Ford Taurus. Ford Taurus. And he found it at a great deal. It was that kind of old bubbly shaped one, you know what I'm talking about there. The car was only about four years old. It had low miles. And it was clear that the only seat that had been used was the driver's seat. And even that, not very much. He bought it at this auction, took it back to his shop, and he even went above and beyond. I actually had never met him before. He he detailed the car Touched up the paint to cover any minor scratches that were on it. And when I got that car, it looked like it had just come off the factory room floor. It was absolutely perfect. Well, I met him at an auction site down in the Twin Cities, or, or from here up in the Twin Cities. and I paid him for the car. In that time of my life, that was the, the nicest car I had ever owned. Not a single scratch or dent on it. In our homes about a hour away from the site that we were at, and I drove that new car home with my wife driving the old car, got a lead, you know, as a man. And on the way home, and on the way home, it sounded to me like one of the belts or a pulley or something was squealing. And I had suspected that it was because he had detailed the car, including the engine compartment, and probably there was just some moisture in there, but it kept going. It was kind of loud, and so... When I got home, I decided I was just going to take a quick peek. And please, when I say this, do not think that I am some sort of expert mechanic at this point, but I I could at least roughly diagnose that there's something wrong going probably with one of the belts or the pulleys. So I popped the hood, and Ford Tauruses at the time, they had essentially a big plastic cover over much of the engine. And I can't remember anymore if you... You had to take uh, bolts or screws or if there was plastic tabs that you had to pop. But whatever it is, I needed a screwdriver to get that off so I could actually get down to where the squeal was coming from. So I went and grabbed one, and I went to work. And as I was doing this, my daughter, who was probably three, maybe four at the time, came outside with me. So I'm leaning over this car. And again, this is one of the nicest cars. This was the nicest car I'd ever owned, the only car I'd ever owned, that didn't have a single scratch on it. And all of a sudden, I hear this sound. <laughs> and I looked over, and there's my daughter with a big stick in her hand. And she had put about a six-inch scratch on the passenger side of that car. And she looked up at me and said, I helped too, Daddy. There are no classes <laughs> that you can take to how you're supposed to respond in a moment like that. I can tell you what was going on in my heart at that moment. Oh! Why do we have children? Right. Before I tell you the end of that story, let me tell you another one. I was probably about nine years old and my family was visiting my aunt and uncle out east. And my aunt and uncle at the time had all girls and they were, they were all girly girls. Their house was built and decorated for girly girls. It was not built for boys like myself and my brother. And we were staying there for a couple of days and after a while we were bored. And we found this ball. It was a little smaller than a baseball, but it was really bouncy. My aunt and uncle, they had this staircase that was, it was kind of an older house, and uh, you went up the stairs, and it had you know, three, four stairs up. It had a wide landing, and then it turned and went up the rest of the way to where the bedrooms were upstairs, and it was a wood staircase. And that landing was pretty good size, and it had in the corner of it a little corner shelf, and it had glass figurines on it. My brother and I had the bright idea that we should take that ball and bounce it down the staircase. And we were careful to make sure that somebody was going to be there in front of that little shelf to catch the ball. The ball's a bounce, you know, a lot. And after a couple of times, and you can already predict what's going to happen, one of them bounced past my brother, dumb kid brother, And it hit that shelf and knocked over several of those figurines, one of which, a couple of which cracked and one shattered in particular. Now, at the time, and it's still true largely today, uh, both my uncle and my dad, they were in our pastors, and they at the time were pastoring very small and poor churches, and they did not have much money. And I did not understand that fully then at nine years old, money, but money was tight for both of them. And I saw, that I saw that this hurt my aunt and uncle very much, and it turns out that the one figurine that was shattered was actually a family heirloom that had been passed down for several generations. You really couldn't put a price on it. It would have been expensive to replace, period, but you can't really replace something like that and have it be valuable. Now, what I remembered about that incident was that those two men, my dad and my uncle, never screamed at me. They never chewed out and laid in to my brother and I. There was, there was no spanking. There was no blow up. There was no moments in which they made me feel stupid. And we were warned. We were talked to very clearly. We were also explained to, if you do that again, there are going to be severe consequences. It's severe in our household. We knew what that meant. Not good. We wouldn't be sitting comfortably for a while. But my dad and my uncle that day modeled Christian grace as fathers as men. So fast forward several decades later and I'm looking into the face of my little girl with that stick and with that 6-inch scratch and with my insides going ballistic I said, "Thank you for helping. But you know you need to you need to ask next time. You you hurt the car. This is not how we fix things. Let me show you how you can help. Now, I wish I could say that I always react that way when things go wrong with my kids. I'm thankful that my son is sitting over here and not up here giving stories, all right? But I will tell you that, that, that I acted that way not because I was such a great guy, but I had men in my life who modeled God's grace to me over And over and over and over again. And so when it came time to dealing with a difficult situation, and guys, you know what those kind of things are like. Those are difficult situations. It may feel like a really little thing in the grand scheme of things, but at the time, it's not little. It's a big deal, right? But that grace, that modeling of what Christian virtue and dignity and integrity and what it meant to be self-control paid dividends Decades later in my life, contrast that to a man in my church who is also a dad and he told me that growing up, the worst job you could have at home was a kid who had to be the guy who handed his dad the wrench under the car. Because when things didn't go well, his dad looked for the first person he could take it out on and if you were there, it was your fault you got yelled at or smacked. He's a guy that has had to have men in his life show him how to be a good dad. Because his dad wasn't one, and his grandpa wasn't one, and his uncles weren't one. He actually had to have people show him, this is what you do in hard situations. You know, all around us, we have young men, and they're in our churches now, that didn't have good dads. And some of them don't have dads at all. In fact, right now in America, one out of every four children, zero to 18, live in single-parent homes. One out of every four. And that doesn't mean that's the only 25%. What that means just right now is that that number will change over time. Some of them will get two parents and then lose another parent over time. We need men who will be patterns who will teach and show and demonstrate what it means not just to be a good dad, but how to be a good husband and a good employee, how to be a manager of their time, a manager of their money, how to think about entertainment choices, how to speak with a dignity, how to do a budget, how to fix the car, how to figure out a water softener, how to have devotions, how to conduct yourself at a job interview, how to deal with sexual temptation, how to speak to your wife, how to protect your family, and on and on the list goes. We've got to have... Men in churches that are willing to put the time in to show to the coming generations what it is to be a godly man. Because our culture is full of people who are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now this leads us to our third word. Our our third word is plan. We're asking the question of how can we produce godly men, followers of Jesus, disciples today. First word, parallel. There's a parallel. The Titus day to our day. Second word is the word pattern. We need men to be patterns for other men. Third word, plan. We have to plan. We have to plan how we're going to do this. Now, part of what Pastor Joel was saying last night applies to this on Sundays. On Sundays when we gather together, we should be actively thinking not only how to direct our hearts toward the worship of God, but also what that means to the other people around us in their daily lives. And he gave some great examples about the kinds of questions and things that you can say and how you can pray for people on Sundays. But, but what we're thinking about right now is what does that look like throughout the week, Monday through Saturday? And let's face it, guys, many of us we're pretty busy. We're very busy. I, I, I know on a day like this, this, this is a sacrifice for many of you because there's a lot of things that you could do or probably need to do that aren't getting done on a day like this. You're, you've got a job. Maybe you've got grandkids. Maybe you've got kids of your own. Maybe you own a house and houses are just perpetual maintenance projects, right? There's always something that needs to be done. How can we be a pattern? How can we be a pattern to others when sometimes it just feels like I'm just trying to keep my head above water? So let me just give a plan for you, and what we're going to do is just think about three ways in which you can be a part of a plan, to help other men become godly men. The first, the first way is this, is you can plan for this by simply inviting other men or other families into doing what you're already doing. You can invite other men, you can invite other ma- families into doing what you're already doing. Here's what I mean by that. Just a few weeks ago, when our, our family was invited by another family in our church to their house. Uh, that, that couple, they have kids, are just a li- some of them are just a little older than ours. But they not only invited us, they not only invited us, they, they also invited another young couple over to their house that have recently been attending our church and I think are going to join pretty soon. And, and they had a purpose for this. Uh, that particular day was a day in which they were going to make apple cider. They've got several uh, Honeycrisp apple trees on their property. And every year they're in the fall, their family uh, gets together, all their kids, and they chop up the apples. And they've got this really cool apple cider press that Uh, Her dad had constructed decades ago, and it's been used in their family for a number of years. And so there's a family tradition that they do every year, and they they make apple cider. So they're already doing this activity, something that they do as a family. And they decided they were going to invite my family and this other young couple and their two little kids over. And this is a young couple in which um, it's a young dad with a young wife. Neither of them come from Christian homes. Neither of them had, have had any semblance of Christian virtue or faithfulness in their homes. Newer Christians within the last about seven years. So we ended up spending, I don't know, five, six hours that day with them. We made cider. They sent some of it home with both of us. We had a wonderful dinner with them. And along the way, we're, we're all just spending time together, talking. And, and you know, when you're with, with somebody on something like that, all sorts of topics come up. Everything from the weather to work to politics to sports. But we also, we also talked about how to make cider. Learned how to construct these things. Took us out into his shop and showed this young guy what some projects he was working on. He's asking questions. He has no idea how to do any of those kinds of things. But then what amazed me, it was just glorious. I, just, I didn't even have to say anything. Just watch this happen. There's a godly man in our church. Is that he took the lead. And he did the kinds of things that Joel was talking about last night, about asking and speaking into people's lives on Sunday. He was doing that on a Saturday afternoon. He was just asking this young guy, because he he knew that they had had some struggles with his in-laws, and they've had some difficulties. They're not thrilled necessarily with their choices as Christians. So he's asking about that, asking about how he was doing in raising his 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 daughter, and his son. He encouraged him on how to deal with some hard life challenges. He showed him that day what a Christian home looks like. And he didn't have to do anything extra other than what he was already doing. He just said, somebody else, come along and see what we do. Look, all of us have stuff like this. You golf, bring someone with you. You work on cars, grab a guy and work on the car. Your car this week, his car next week. You like the Vikings, grab a couple of guys from your church, watch the game, and then together at halftime, mute the TV and say, hey, tell me what is your greatest joy this week and your greatest challenge? Pray with them. You have kids in sports, invite them to come watch the game with you. Invite some people to come watch their game with you, and afterwards, grab fast food. Talk about life. Conversations and life will happen. Maybe you have all of your kids out of the house. Instead of you and your wife just going out for dinner, what about inviting that young dating couple in your church to join you for dinner? You might be 40, 50 years older than them, but I'll tell you, they will love it. They really will. They'll enjoy it. Or even more, invite them over to a dinner in your home. You know, encourage your wife, hey, we've got this couple in our church, you know, they, they're newer Christians, why don't we have them over and let's just do a day where we, we make a bunch of meals all together ahead of time. That's your thing. Stuff that we can put in the freezer that we can pull out during the week. I mean, there's just, there's endless possibilities. You don't have to do anything extra, just bring somebody along with to whatever you're doing and pour your life into them. Now I'm not suggesting that we can do that every single day of the week. But what if we what if we at least as men in this room committed that Monday through Saturday as men that we would just try to do that one day or one evening a week? What kind of differences would that make in our local churches? What kind of powerful change would that make? The second way you can do this. I want you to think about Three concentric circles, smaller, a little bigger, and large. Smaller, little bigger, and large. I want you to think about what this means if you have a family. You do have this responsibility first with your family. Let me just say that it's been my observation that there are men in churches who really don't spend enough time with their own family, with their own kids. Consumed with pleasures or other things that need to be done, and don't actually do the work of sitting down with kids for a meal at the evening, you know reading a book, listening to them and just the other night um, uh, one of one of my kids uh, last week on opening weekend got got a, a really nice really nice deer. So this week's been a crazy busy week for me, and so we process our own deer, and so I was, I was up really late, actually, one night, and my eldest daughter, she's 16, said, hey, Dad, you want some help? So she sat there and helped me cut up a deer and get it all ready to be packaged and put in the freezer. We had, we didn't, weren't doing anything different that I needed to be done, just brought her into that process. She sat there and was asking me all sorts of questions. She plays, I just finished playing a uh, for high school soccer, for the public school nearby. and She's like, Dad, you know, I'm trying to find ways that I can actually talk about Jesus to other people. It's really hard. I was blown away by that. Like, And she goes, uh, you know, this is kind of an out there question, but what does predestined mean? <laughs> it's 10.30 at night. <laughs> well, let me try to explain that one too and you could talk to your pastor about that all right so in that concentric circle there, there are so many opportunities to teach to show Christian maturity second think about a larger circle of your church plan I like that word that Joel used last night plan think about people that you can do this with in fact I would just encourage you do you have somebody in mind right now in your church You have an idea? Think about that for just a moment. Maybe, and then third, a bigger circle, as you get good at that first and that second, then then you can think about a a larger circle. Maybe you can invite not only that Christian guy in your church to learn how to swap out a wheel bearing in your car, but also you can grab your 30-year-old neighbor two houses down who doesn't know Jesus and bring him with you. And pretty soon you'll start finding lots of ways to make followers of Jesus. Finally, third way that you can be part of this plan. Be willing not only to give this kind of thing, but to receive this kind of thing. When it's the person inviting you over. I have something to say in your life too. That, that day when I watched that godly Christian man doing this with this younger guy, I was like terribly humbled by that. It's like, this is awesome in every sense of that word. This is a God-glorifying, awesome thing. Challenged my soul. I was fed on that day, not just with apple cider, but with the goodness of God watching people's lives be transformed and transforming others. This is a great command of Jesus. We have great challenges, but we also have great opportunities in the methods that God has given to us as men. Father, I pray that you would use these words for the glory of your name and for the good of these men and the respective churches that they come from. I pray that you would help us to think uh, carefully even now, by how we might have a part in this kind of a plan in our local churches. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Tim.